Welcome to the New Books Network. I just started to pack when you came. I thought you said you were in bed. No, no, no I didn't. Are you packing to go on a honeymoon? Yes, of course. Are you packing to run away from me like you ran away from Mr. Baker? Stop it, Dix. I can't take any more of it. Stop. Hello? Who? Well, I'll give her the message. You have a cancellation on Flight 16 for New York. I'll tell her. There's a cancellation on Flight 16 for New York. I'll stay with you, Dix. I promise I'll stay with you. I love you, Dix. I'll marry you. I'll go away with you. Take me. Run away from me the first chance you get. Don't act like this, Dix. I can't live with a maniac. I'll never let you go. So welcome back to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. Here we are, and I just want to say how glad we are again to be on the New Books Network. This is really exciting. We're reaching more people. How great is this, Mike? Yeah, it's wonderful. Again, these these are our people. I think we're reaching uh, people that are really interested in, in movies. So we're happy to be here, and thanks for listening. And people that read books about movies and, and watch movies and then read books about them. So here we are today. The way the show works is that Mike and I watch movies separately and talk about them on the show for the first time. The way it usually works is one of us will find a movie and, and fall in love with it, start nagging the other one, and then the other one finally gives in and watches it. And because we don't have some long-term program for how we do these. So this time, it's a Dan pick, and I started nagging Mike. So what movie are we doing today, Mike? In a Lonely Place. In a Lonely Place, the great Humphrey Bogart film, 1950, directed by Nicholas Ray, screenplay by Andrew P. Salt. Um, and in part one, we always talk about our overall take on the film. The kind of unspoken rule is that if you pick the movie, the other guy gets to go first. So, Mike, overall, we haven't talked about this yet. I can't wait to hear what you say about it. Go. I do admit that I agreed to watch this movie because it's 90 minutes which, as you know, uh, follows my Mike rule for uh, how good old movies should operate. But you're uh, not a Philistine, but you're not, you. it's not like you get, you're not, it's, you, Mike would never say for the record that a two hour movie is boring or something like that. No, no, it's, it's about, it's about structure. You can, you can generally tell what, that a screenwriter knows what they're doing if you know nothing else about them by their ability to tell a story in 90 minutes. How much would you cut of the three hours and 40 minutes of Heaven's Gate? Uh, I'm angry at people who claimed that they've cut time from that movie. They don't understand what they cut. They don't. They don't understand it out at all. Like they, they're blind surgeons. Um, but in a lonely place is not what you would expect. Uh, I cannot count the number of times that my hand literally went over my mouth because th- this sets you up for one for one kind of movie and deliver something totally else. I can tell you my my first. Nick Ray love is I watched uh, bigger than life in college and thought that it was a wonderful movie and deeply subversive. And I didn't know that that was kind of his calling card. I thought bigger than life is just an interesting movie, but I can, I can see the the germs of what would eventually be bigger than life in something like in a lonely place, which is really about loneliness uh, and rage and violence uh, and, and alienation. It, is the only is the only way that I can put it. Again, sometimes without, um, we, I think we just talked about this in Raging Bull. Sometimes without a psychological cause, without a correlative, uh, unexplained anger, unexplained viciousness, um, 
it's sort of an anti-Casablanca, if you will. Casablanca is a movie about two people that are deeply in love, that are torn apart by circumstance and submitting to circumstances what makes it romantic. In a Lonely Place is about two people that are ripped together because one of them is an is an odious demon inside and it's and it's all his fault and he ruins everything and they both have to submit to it and i i think this this movie is is kind of a detective who done it where you know who didn't do it uh but the person who didn't do it is ultimately guilty and that guilt sinks to the center of the movie and ruins everything uh in 90 minutes what bogart does and we know that we know that he is not the murderer but what he does is so much more interesting than actually catching the murderer. A- absolutely right. So it's it's a it's a who done it where but who cares it, who it's a it's a subversive who done it because it, it's almost like a well you might as well have done it. It's a it's a well why didn't you do it? And it, he could have done it because he was going to do it to the UCLA kid when he was going to bash his head in with a rock. He's he, he's he's the ultimate heel. And but they they use Gloria Graham. They they use a warm, beautiful character. To conv- you see the best side of this person. In fact, you see a heel through the eyes of love such that you believe in the love yourself. And so ultimately, as the viewer, you're subversively crushed by the fist of his rage. Um, and it, I mean, this movie just hurts to watch when in a good detect- way. Yeah, in a good way. It's a good stomachache, as we say. When we did Taxi Driver, I remember one of us said, you know, there's no doubt that no, no matter what happens with Sybil Shepherd or any or, or Sport or Jodie Foster, Travis Bickle's going to kill somebody. Absolutely. And this movie kind of is, right? Don't you get the same vibe? Like he's going to kill somebody. Yeah. Um, uh, Dixon Steele is as bad as everyone makes him out to be. I th- in, the world, in the world of noir, you know, you, you get misunderstood or alienated characters when he first walks into the bar and everyone's like, hey, Dix, haven't seen you around. Hey, Dix, glad to have you back. When are you going to write another movie? And- what that tells you in the formula of Hollywood movies is I'm going to tell you exactly why he's alienated, right? It's like Casablanca. I'm going to tell you what broke his heart, what happened, how it can be fixed, ultimately whether or not it can be fixed. And the, the it's just because he's he's unbearable. Everywhere he goes, no matter how good people are to him or how much they try to tailor to his needs, he will start a fight. He will get drunk. He will be awful. He'll scar people with his fist, right? This is the this is like the one movie where the police captain in it is not meant to be an ironic figure of authority. He's 100% absolutely correct, right? He's looking at this guy's- With a folder of stuff? Right, and right. It's like, what do they say in all the old movies? Like, do you like him for it, right? The, the, the captain likes him for it. And though he's though he's wrong, he's not wrong, he's right. Another wrinkle to that is that he's Humphrey Bogart, so in the beginning, what is one thing I think this movie really does well is that at the beginning, we also like him. When he says, when he is at the red light in the beginning and he's just talking to that woman who says, oh, I was in one of your movies. And the guy's like, don't talk to my wife. And he goes, let's pull over. And Humphrey Booker goes, what about right here? And he gets out of the intersection. He's about like, you're kind of like, whoa, that was wild. And then when he goes to the restaurant, he beats up the actor because the actor puts a cigar out of the old man's. And then so when Bogart slaps that guy, you're kind of on Bogart's side. Like, don't make fun of this guy. He's like, you have set son-in-laws back 50 years. But what's great about the movie is that as the movie goes on, you start to see things more from Gloria Graham's point of view and his angry outbursts become more and more terrifying. In the beginning, you're kind of glad he slaps the actor, but you don't feel glad when he slaps his agent in the face at the engagement party and breaks his glasses. Right. I think what he does, I think the way in which this movie is subversive, which is a 
word I've used a couple times is that you you come in banking on his Bogartness, right? And the movie's literally going to get in under the Bogartness and subvert it. So what what does that say about you, right? It doesn't say anything about him as a character. It says something about you, the audience, who like him, right? And then let let's see, right? Let's see how much credibility you give him over ninety minutes until at the end, like we'll clear him of the murder. Someone else has literally uh, copped to the murder, but you still hate him. He's still the guilty party. Because in the beginning, he's Humphrey Bogart, and you have been trained for decades to love him and find him charismatic. And all the, when he's signing the autograph books, and he's like, I'm nobody. That's another great self-hating thing. Like, I'm nobody for the little kids. And you're used to that. But then all of a sudden, he's in the police station, and that the girl is dead. And he's saying, well, I guess I have the wrong emotions. And, and you wait a minute. Like, what's this is not some this is not him being Philip Marlowe anymore, blowing off everything with irony. Like, this is going to get worse and worse. Yeah, I I hope um this is going to get us in trouble on this podcast, but I th- I think that this is almost almost a better version or a more Camus version of the stranger, right? The Camus uh, Camus element in the stranger was to say uh right a, a person gets sentenced to death for having the wrong emotion. And though the stranger works on many levels, I think his original intention is lost in what's good or interesting about the stranger, but this really is a, a character that loses the audience's participation in li- in liking him or loving him or 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 Bogart's ability to just be famous and charming is totally undermined by the fact that he does have the wrong emotions all the time. Welcome back. So in part two, of course, we do our key scenes or the moments that encapsulate the theme of the film as a whole. So Dan, why don't you kick us off? I want to start with a quotation, which was one of the best quotations in the movie when I saw it again, getting ready for the show today, because it reminds me of something you said about how even Bogart doesn't participate with his Bogartness in the scenes once the first act is finished. It's the scene where he says to Gloria Graham, I've been looking for someone a long time. I didn't know her name or where she lived. I'd never seen her before. A girl was killed. And because of that, I found what I was looking for. Now I know your name, where you live and how you look. Now, he thinks he's being ultra romantic there, but there's something very creepy I find about that line. Don't you? Don't you think there's something a little yes. edgy and creepy about that? Right. Because if he said uh, some somewhere I knew there was there was a woman for me and then he kissed. OK, that's fine. We, we know how to respond to that in the movie. But then he says a girl was killed. And because of that, I found what I was looking for. Like, are you saying like, well, the algebra works out like, yeah, it's sad. This girl was killed. But like uh, uh, another girl popped up like and then he says, uh, I know your name, where you live and how you look. It's heartfelt from his point of view. But it's also creepy. It's like when he proposes to her and he says, I always knew I'd get stuck with you eventually. All I needed was a little push. Or when he tells her you have to pick out the ring and she's trying to stall. And he says, no, no, you have to choose it. You've got to wear it for the rest of your life. Like even his moments of heartfelt emotion are undercut with this threat. And I think that's what makes the movie so unsettling and so good. Well, it's uh, it's it's we've discussed so far how it's an anti-movie one of the ways I think in which it's an anti-movie is that uh, he's talking about casting. That That is literally what casting is, right? We it's um, we know some girl's going to play this part. We just don't know, you know, wh- who she is, what her name is, you know, and what she's done before until, until we see her and then we approve her for the part. And so I think that to think of your life in those terms, that's why I don't, I don't necessarily accept that he's just angry about the movie business because I think that the movie business is so deeply ingrained in himself that he's thinking about life in the same way 
right? Like when he's in the detective's office, he's thinking to himself, what picture am I in? Right. I thought I was in a different movie. I walked in and I'm not in the scene that I thought. Uh, and I think that that's really why it's grotesque. I, I And I, I agree that his romance doesn't belong on the other side of an equal sign from this um, a tragic and, and freakish murder. Um, but it's, it's a creepy thing to say anyway, because yeah. right now characters in movies sometimes say things like, um, I never believed in love. I thought that that was all how Hollywood works. Now I met you and now I believe that that's a thing, right? That That's something that you could say. That's an emotion that you could experience. But I always knew it was real. I always knew that somebody would be there for me, right? I, I always knew that I would have this in my life, but I just didn't know the specifics until I found out your specifics is, you, you know, I mean, like, right, you would call the police captain. That's what right. you should do. Right. Because he, because the way he, he doesn't even say, now I've met you. It's like, I know your name. I know what time you leave the house in the morning. I know what kind of toast you enjoy. Like everything about it, it's just like one degree past stalker. Now, you, uh, so to go to my moment real quick, that shouldn't work, right? This movie shouldn't work. And it shouldn't work because when you figure out how odious he is, uh, like right away and he's not reacting to the girl's death, right? What kind of, what kind of guy living in a creepy apartment in Los Angeles sends you out to the taxi stand by yourself with $10, right? And that's, the, that's the first thing that the captain or that his friend asks, right? She came over and it's like, you, you didn't walk her to the thing. And he said, well, I said, I was tired. So I was tired. I was tired. Yeah. This movie shouldn't work except we get to see him through Laurel's eyes. And there's a whole, there's a, there's a whole scene where right she's running his household she kicks out the the lady doing her massages right they start to run life together and he seems harmless or he seems he seems like a tame lion right to the extent that they put him to bed and the drunk guy comes to get his $20 so he can go drink and he talks him to sleep with poems and i think that 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 comes i don't know like the exact minute that that little sequence comes in but it it comes in just in time to rescue us from some kind of opinion of him and then to make the rest a, a slide. If you were if you were pitching this as a roller coaster or trying to chart the emotions, there'd be a significant dip and then it would be almost unrecoverable or unbearable for another 45 minutes unless I took you to a different place, reset your expectations and then dropped you. All right, so in part three, we always talk about the ending or the title or some key takeaways. Dan, what do you make of the ending of this film? The more doubt that she has about him, the more unhinged he seems. And that's a great combination for drama, right? So we talked about the fact that in the beginning, in act one, the people he gets angry at and punches, they're people that seem to us, for lack of a better term, to disturb, to, they deserve it, right? But as the movie goes on, his violence and his anger goes up, but our endorsement of that violence and that anger goes down. It's a perfect, they're perfectly, you know, um, disproportional. So when he picks up the rock to kill the guy in the road rage incident, you're, you're horrified like she is. And it only gets worse until the point is that, you know, he's trying to strangle her. So she says at the end, if Brub had called a day ago, then the whole thing would have been different. You called one day earlier, the whole thing would have been different if we knew that he didn't kill her. Um, but it was that time of doubt, I think, that poisoned their relationship. And that is such strong poison that there's no antidote. You can't go back from that. That's why at the end, I think they're both in a lonely place. I almost agree, except that I here again, I think this is the ultimate 
anti-Romeo and Juliet from the sense that it's not circumstance or a missed message. I think that she really believes that the misplaced oh, timing, right? The misplaced, the misplaced timing is what did us in. I don't believe that. Do you? What she, right? No, no, no. What she okay, doesn't know right. that is if she had gone to the altar with the guy, uh, that they that they would be married and still in a lonely place because he'll either drive you away or kill you or, or tra- kill someone Travis, in front of you. Because Travis Bickle's going to kill somebody. Yes, D- Dixon's Dixon Steele is a magnet for trouble. But he's a magnet for trouble because he makes trouble wherever he goes. He is the trouble. He's the thing that you're, he's the thing that you're trying to avoid. And and what's wonderful is that the like even the lady who does her massages tells her that right that don't come crawling back to me. Don't come call, calling your real friends when you find out what this guy's like because I have life experience and you don't. The masseuse says you can't run away from this guy the way you ran away from the realtor. Remember, she took the guy, she ran away from the realtor. You can't do that. She knows what Gloria Graham doesn't. And romantic movies are supposed to say, well, we know better than the adults, right? Your your life, my my experience transcends your life experience. Uh, and in this case, it's like, no, it doesn't. Uh, the, the life experience is 100% correct, has been around the block and knows violent uh, uh tr- violent troublemakers for what they are. They are there, like, he's not disturbing the peace. He is the disturbance. Yes. So when she says, if we, uh, and let me, let me clarify then my point to you, when she says, if we'd only found a day earlier, like none of this would have happened, that's her comforting herself. That's yes. a lie. Yes. The, the answer to her is what Jake Barnes says at the end of the sun also rises, which is, isn't it pretty, isn't it pretty to, think, to so? think so? That's exactly, she, that's a great, that's her like self-medicating. Yes. And, and again, I think that, I think that this movie is so unbelievably subtle in the way that it hinges on different characters' perspectives uh, and and self descriptions. Right? We we know what we think we know what we're getting into when you see Humphrey Bogart in black and white. He's got the hat on, and like you said, he's he's getting into traffic arguments. We think, oh, he's bitter for some just cause, and we're going to figure out how he's the good guy. And this this is like you know, what if Rick in Casablanca was just a heel all the way through? And it, what a subversive idea, not even like 10 years later to, you know, to, to pull that out of Hollywood, but boy, does it work? It shouldn't work. Because, because of course you're making me laugh, but because of course in Casablanca, that is the story of a guy who's very angry and cynical for a very good cause who then gets pulled out of it. Yeah, exactly, but the, but they they are star-crossed, right? right? So right, the, the right, exactly. the, and that's what that's what Casablanca. That's why the airplane on. works at the end. That's why the airplane scene works. That's that's why it's that's why it's immortal. But what what if you were crossing your own stars everywhere you went, and even if they aligned, and you found somebody who was willing to see the best side of you, you'd literally put your hands around their neck and want to choke the life out of them for the audacity to have a positive opinion of you. You would you deserve to be in a lonely place. And that's why those scenes where she's typing and she's being his helper and making him breakfast and everything. And you think like, oh, now they found domestic bliss. He just needed somebody like her to kind of change him. But then, of course, remember, she meets Bogart's past love interest. And we're told that he broke her nose, but that she didn't press charges. So he had a story with her as well. And she's, they're both lying to themselves in those, those, those scenes where he's writing the movie that, oh yeah, this is going to work this time, but you're not going to change him. You're not going to change Travis Bickle. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about In a Lonely Place. So follow us on Twitter at 15AMMINFILM. Follow us where else, Mike? Letterboxd. Let us know what to watch. Thanks for listening again. Thanks to the New Books Network for having us on. And we hope you'll keep listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast, but let us know what you want us to watch next. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.